In the golden age of musicals, shows were developed by going out of town. Nowadays, shows may go out of town, but often as not, we hear about readings and workshops as a key part of the making of new musicals. Hello, I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and joining me today to discuss the development of new musicals are Sue Frost, a lead producer of the musical Memphis, and for 20 years, associate producer at Goodspeed Musicals. Robin Goodman, producer of such musicals as Avenue Q, Tick, Tick, Boom, and In the Heights. Paulette Haupt, founder and artistic director of the O'Neill Musical Theatre Conference and founder of Premieres, which develops new musicals here in New York. And Scott Sanders, producer of The Color Purple and the upcoming Houdini. Welcome, everybody. Hi. Thank you, Howard. I want to simply begin by asking you, when you encounter a new musical, either as a script or at a reading or in some form, and you say, I think something should be done with this, how do you begin the conversation with the artists to talk about what the show might need? I'll start with Robin. Well, Avenue Q is a good example because when I uh, heard Bobby and, and uh, Bobby Lopez and Jeff Marks singing songs with puppets operated by Rick Lyon in the BMI workshop, I approached them and said, I, I, I'm passionate about what you're doing. I'd love to make a musical out of it. And they said, oh, thanks a lot, but we're going to make a TV show out of it. I said, whoops. Well, I think, you know, you'd get a TV show if first you wrote a, a musical that was produced in New York and did well. They fought me on it, and they said, well, I don't know, we're going to invite a lot of TV people, we're going to do another presentation of these four songs that we have. And I said, well, can I invite theater people? And they said, sure. So I invited about five or six uh, producers that I knew, and uh, the one that was the most enthusiastic was Jeffrey Seller, uh, who was there with Kevin McCollum. And uh, when I walked in the door and said, okay, here's the guys who produced Rent, because, you know, I wasn't enough, obviously. Here's the guys who produced Rent. How about we talk about making a musical? Well, obviously, no one from the TV world had responded. In fact, a lot of people had called me and said, you're the perfect person to develop this show. You should develop it. It's a great idea, but we don't want to do it. Kevin and Jeffrey did, so uh, we went into the room with them and said, look, we think this could be a great musical. Let's start from scratch and start working on it. Hmm. And that's, that's basically where we began. They had a book writer. Uh, we ultimately had to fire that book writer and, and try to shape the show in a way that uh, was a, a quirky, fresh idea for a musical in a more traditional form, really. Sue? I think it's pretty much the same thing. Whenever I see something that I'm excited about or I feel I would like to um, participate in, the first thing I do is sit down with the writers and say, what do you, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you want? Because I, I, I think it's a mistake to sort of go down a path without everybody wanting the same thing. I think, you know, you had to wait them out a little bit, yes, right? And yes. say, okay, TV's not yes. happening now. Do you want to talk about a musical? And, yes. and sometimes they'll say, oh, they go, we're going to Broadway. And I go, well, maybe, maybe we want to talk about going out of town, workshopping, maybe we're going to do this. And, and if they ultimately come around to that and we all want the same thing, then, okay, now it's time to take that next step. Hmm. Now, Scott, hmm. in your case with Color Purple, that was a project that you initiated, correct? I usually work in finding stories or ideas that I get excited about, particularly stories or characters, and then go and 
licensed those rights in the case of The Color Purple from Alice Walker and Steven Spielberg and Warner Brothers, and then really put the team together that, that I feel will best execute the vision that we have for the, for the show. Now, Paulette, with the O'Neill, you have a relatively short period of time for the work, and it's a process of sort of discovery, whereas with premieres, you're ultimately shepherding a show towards production. So is the challenge different in how you're working with authors between the two places? It's really quite different, yeah, because at the O'Neill, um, um, we're, we're looking at a work that is in a, usually a very embryonic state, or the book writer has just joined the project, or the teams live in different places, the creative artists live in different places in the country and haven't had the opportunity to really be together in the same place for a while. Mm -hmm. um, so when we get um, anywhere from 100 to 150 open submissions every year, and uh, I read an awful lot of that number, but once something really speaks to me or makes me laugh out loud or uh, raises the hair on the back of my neck, then I start to really read it um, more carefully. And if it's based on something, I usually go to the, the, the resource material as well. But eventually, the same thing. Sit down in a room and find out if what I think the work is about is what they're writing, or, and if not, make sure that they have a unified point of view and vision about the work. And then at the O'Neill, um, they're able to, we select works that are at a point where they're ready to be in front of an audience and the authors need to see the arc of the work, but they're not for, <clears throat> not for enough alone for production values where they can, they really need to look at the bare bones and the structure of the work and we do that intensively for two weeks. So what percentage of work do you have that comes to you from the author, from the writer themselves versus something that may have a producer attached like Tales of the City, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's see. Probably in my 33 years at the <laughs> O'Neill, and I think we've done, uh, I've, I've lost count, but it's well over 100 musicals. Probably five of those were, makes, yes. were attached in some way or had some It's really the, the artist coming to you Absolutely. as the first stage. Absolutely. I'm going to say something contrary, which is, uh, not totally contrary, but I find that a material that's generated from the artists tends to be the most, uh, the easiest to develop and the most satisfying. I mean, I, I agree with you. You've mm. had great success. Oh, no, but I totally do. agree with you. It, it, it's that passion and that if they don't have that connection, my first question to them is always, what was the impulse that you had to write this show? And it, it, you can tell how connected they are to the material and whether or not they have a vision. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. That, that's why I'm always... You know, I, I don't want to go around and shop movie titles. You know, I, I would prefer to hear some, you know, my core value is bring young people to the theater. So I try to produce shows that will attract them. And uh, so I try to hear the new, fresh, quirky voices that are trying things that are uh, uh, maybe outside the norm 
uh, or uh, different than anything I've ever seen. I like to, I always like to see plays and musicals that I've never seen on stage before, like Avenue Q or In the Heights or things like that. But when you meet with those writers and you and you yeah. hear that, then you have to you have to feel that what they want is what you want. Right? Absolutely, I mean, absolutely. The worst thing in the world is to try to try to shape something into something that's not what they meant it to be. You know, yeah. because mm -hmm. then you're just going to come to grief. Well, for some people, so the true. word development is a very ugly word because <laughs> it suggests that it's about someone or some group of people imposing their view and shaping a work in a particular direction that they believe it should go in. With new young authors, and you've all had the opportunity to work with them, or people who've not written for the stage before, your voices, however they're heard by those people, can have enormous impact because those people haven't built up their own confidence. How do you how do you negotiate that? I think that one of the line? things we've we're, we've all been around a while, so I think we've developed probably all of us our own vocabulary. Uh, I like to do it by asking questions. Mm. I think that's the most uh, without because you don't want to tell them what to write ever, ever mm -hmm. because what I'm going to write is going to be junk. What they're going to write is going to be original. Right. So uh, you draw them out by asking them questions about why they have a certain moment or why they're going in this direction. That's that's the best way I can do it. You agree? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. At the at the O'Neill, we invite people like Robin and Sue, and others to come in and see a work called, and then sit down with the writers and myself and the director, and ask questions. And I always urge them: don't, don't tell us what would, how you could, how you would fix this, but just let us know where you went off the track and where you were confused. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so the questions are really, when they have to answer, it's far better than defending or Absolutely. disagreeing that that's not where I was going. Mm -hmm. But the questions are so valuable. One of the issues, of course, is where the show might ultimately belong. Mm -hmm. Scott, you're developing work primarily for commercial production. You're not yes. looking to just develop a project. Robin, the same holds true with you, I would imagine. Except most at the cases. roundabout. Yeah. Except with your work at the roundabout. Yeah. Sue, you've worn both hats now, uh -huh. 20 uh -huh. years at Goodspeed, uh -huh. and then Paulette, the work that you do at the O'Neill certainly is just about developing the work for its own sake and for the benefit of the authors. Is there a desire, you know, how do you deal with crafting a show for wherever it may end up, or is the ultimate success for a musical, does it always have to be Broadway? I think that's a really, it's a good question. I think that historically, the kind of target for traditional musical theater has been Broadway. And, and that sort of kicks off the, I'll call it distribution. Um, one of the things that uh, frustrated me enormously when I was at the Goodspeed developing musicals, and I developed over 50 musicals while I was there, was that sort of outlet for distribution. And not every show was meant to should live on Broadway. It didn't mean it wasn't a great show or didn't have the potential of being a great show. Um, and it was, it, was, uh, it was challenging to find those other opportunities. So that when I left, um, my vision for um, uh, Junkyard Dog, the production company, that we started was to create uh, opportunities for development 
and production, and, and not necessarily always Broadway, uh, but to create those opportunities utilizing the tremendous resources that are out there of people who want to do new musicals, institutions, theaters, uh, individuals. Um, I think there's enormous appetite for musical theater throughout the world. And um, if anything, I'd like to kind of knock down that idea that a show has to play Broadway before it hits the rest of the world. I agree with you. I mean, yeah. we have the rights to Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist, um, which has sold 65 million books around the world in 37 different languages. And, and we have an amazing author and director attached to it. But I'm not sure it wants to live on Broadway. I, I'm not sure whether, in, in some ways, that may be too limiting. And I'm not sure whether putting the brand musical theater on it may not keep out a whole bunch of people who care about that story and care about the characters and may mm -hmm. not necessarily be typical theater goers. So, <clears throat> excuse me, when I think about um, wanting to have a, a piece of live stage entertainment, musical entertainment, that can play around the world and that can be in front of audiences in, in small and larger style buildings, um, it really does bring up your question of distribution. What, what is the best way for it to occur? From a marketing perspective, we all know you have to launch the brand in some way. It has to become an event or, or be launched. And I, I remember from my 15 years of running Radio City Music Hall, we used to get a lot of shows would come to New York and play for four, five, six, seven days at the Music Hall first so that then it could go tour because they felt like they could launch the Moscow Circus or they could launch something at the Music Hall and then it would mm -hmm. be something. Mm -hmm. And Broadway has sort of served as that in the world of legit theater as has, <clears throat> excuse me, has, has London, but it seems to me that we have to find ways that that can be broader than that because, like you said, not everything wants to be 10, 15 million dollars to find out whether or not it has an audience because a lot of shows would have audiences that you don't necessarily need to spend that kind of money to launch it. Well, it's also part of the, uh, the development of the writers, too. I mean, they don't ultimately get a chance to figure out what's working and what, what isn't working until they have an audience. So if you ultimately have to be one of the, how many new writers may be being seen on Broadway this year in order to, to get that kind of exposure for, for what, your work? Less than two work? hands? That's crazy. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are, there, are, there are those opportunities out there. I was just talking to some uh, writers from the NYU graduate program just last week and I said, I said they said what advice can you give us I said if somebody wants to do your show let them just put it out there get it out there figure out um, what it is about the show that works and doesn't work and it's not going to hurt you if it's being done by a university in Iowa right. it's only going to help you as long as they let you be there while it's happening you know I mean you have to benefit from that experience so. But it's also touring is such a good option. But just like New York, you, as Malcolm Gladwell would say, you need a purple cow. You need a, a way to market it, you mm -hmm. know, because the presenting houses aren't going to buy it. I mean, they'll buy your title because that's a really good title, probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they're not going to buy every good musical and put it on tour. Because and, and they can't sell it. They can't sell it. They can't sell you it. know, it's about selling. When I teach, yeah. I, I teach these young producers, half the, your life you're selling, or maybe more than that, 75%. More than percent. More than I would that. say maybe 75, 80%. It's mm -hmm. true. It's, it's true. like when I was running mm -hmm. Second Stage. I used to say, I, I spend 80% of my time raising money and 20% of my time doing art. Now it's the opposite, actually. I spend 
20% of my time raising money and 80% developing things and, and doing artistic things. Now, how does that happen? <laughs> That's kind of crazy, That's isn't it? That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, <laughs> if you can make a living at it, it's lucky. But mm. One of the many reasons, uh, or perhaps the primary reason I've stayed at the O'Neill so long is that our board and our staff, uh, all of us are open to all kinds of music theater storytelling. And I have never been asked to work very hard to try and find the next Broadway musical mm, or the next off-Broadway musical, find talent and voices. And the authors, the creators, are allowed to come to the O'Neill to explore their work not for a particular audience, but just to find out what their work is about and not think about where it's going to go from there. Well, at, you did wonders for Avenue Q. We took a huge step at the O'Neill. Oh, huge it changed step. so much it in It changed. Two weeks. They, they wrote and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And, and by the time we left there, we had a show. Was that the first time they had a real audience? Yes. Outside of uh, No, we did some readings and workshops, but... But, a, but, a, but an but audience of, yes, of people from... Strangers. Well, there were people, actually, yeah, strangers. Yeah, strangers. There were people who paid money yeah, who to come. who paid yeah. money yeah. to come. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. And I think that's critical, Very as opposed critical. to friends who are... Or, yes. or not friends, who yes. are... Theater people? It was yeah. really <laughs> astonishing, too, because there were a lot of people that came in, in the first week to see a reading, and would see and saw it again a second or third time and every time they saw an entirely different piece. Right. Unbelievable. Just structurally it was just moving all the time but and they were looking for their plot points. You know, they were all young writers, a young writer, energy. young director, mm -hmm. young composers and you know I always say there was a little fairy dust because they were all majorly talented but that doesn't mean that your mm -hmm. show's gonna work. Mm -hmm. But Jason Moore also, you know, they they just did a spectacular job. Yeah, it was, but it's a little magic that's in the air when you get a show that works like that. Well, you know? yeah. I should take a moment and disclose some connections, which is the fact that I was the executive director of the O'Neill for three years, including the time when Avenue Q was there. Sue and I worked together at Goodspeed for four years. Um, we had shows that when I was at the O'Neill, I would call Goodspeed and say, you ought to come and look at this. Um, so, so there is this interlinking, but what I want to come back to is this issue of the authors, which is, in the case of the O'Neill, you can have a successful process, even if at the end of the two weeks, the authors decide, we're not going to go any further with this. Because it's not about moving it to production, it's serving them at the level that they want. Would you, is that correct? It's absolutely correct, yes. And maybe it's going to be their next musical or their musical after. Absolutely, that or they find that they're, they're uh, well, very often they'll just find that their vision is not as united and unified as they thought it was, and, and they move on to other That's projects. So much better to find it out there, you know? Yeah. So oh, yeah. much better to find it out there than after you've spent $15 million, you know? <laughs> It's Absolutely. like when you close your show, right? It's the same decision, you know, yeah, in and a way. Yeah, <laughs> and we're just as proud of the works that didn't move on uh, because the talent got support that they needed and, mm -hmm. the, and the chance to mm -hmm. look through the lens and see what they have. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a quote here from the esteemed uh, Emanuel Eisenberg, a veteran producer, saying, 40 years ago, you listened to a show, you read the book, and you said, let's do that musical. Mm -hmm. That does not seem to happen <laughs> at all. Can anybody think of an example of a show that literally just went, you know, the authors wrote it, and somebody said, okay, we're doing it. And it didn't have any interim steps. I guess shows that they, that 
people find out of town or in their more incubative stages. Um, wasn't wasn't um, drowsy chaperone of a vert? I think they worked on it quite a bit. They I wasn't did. involved with it, but I, I think they, they did, did a lot. Of work. I mean, I saw it <clears throat> in a reading form. I think the first time the producer who ultimately brought it to Broadway saw it up in Toronto in yes. some rehearsal studio. And there were two separate Toronto productions. And, they were two, and this was the first one. And, and actually, it had had a whole life as kind of a, a, a cabaret. Well, it actually began as, as a birthday party. As a, as <laughs> as a, a birthday party. That's wedding right. present. Yeah, wedding yeah, present. Yeah, something, wedding yeah. yeah. So, and that was, so that was um, uh, years. Uh, and, but it ultimately ended up being presented in the NAMPT Festival. And that's when it kind of... That's when it took off. That's when it took off. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't even think of one. I mean, Alter Boys was developed in New York. We didn't go out of town, but we did a lot of you development. You went through NIMP? And yeah, we went through NIMP. And then, yeah. we, you know, NIMP, when it was at NIMP, it was, almost, it was pretty much done. But we went through a lot of... Uh, we, we had three book writers on that show until mm. we found the right one. A uh, lot of development. I think plays more often. You read them, you say, let's do it. But, but well, musicals... How often, how often do you think there's a musical that's at a regional or a Lort Theater and there's no producer attached to it necessarily. They and can't afford it. And it's living and and then not people anymore. come and see it. It's, yeah, 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 it's yeah, always, in, it's so always enhanced, right? Not yeah. so much. No, it used to be. I mean, that's the kind of sure. thing that we be. fought like crazy for uh, up, at the, up at the Norma Terrace is to get people to come up and see a show that um, wasn't necessarily ready but had great potential. We, were, we had more luck getting other um, regional theaters to right. look at it and take mm -hmm. it on. And what we developed over time was relationships uh, with other theaters that we realized we had similar tastes. I mean, that's so actually how my partner now. So you could put two or three now. of you together to mm -hmm. combine. Well, it, it, ideally, ideally that was the plan, that you'd you'd get two or three theaters together and say over the course of two years, we're going to workshop it here, right, then we'll right. produce it here, we'll, we'll produce plan. it here. So, And that's actually kind of the early uh, life of Memphis. Uh, before we really? were involved as commercial producers. Did you spend $2 million enhancing a regional theater production? N not the original. I mean, uh, the history of Memphis costs. is sort of interesting because originally uh, a gentleman named George W. George commissioned Joe DiPietro to write it. He, they brought David Bryan on. Uh, it was done in a festival at Theater Works in Palo Alto uh, at the suggestion of somebody at NAMPT. It was going to be workshopped at the Norma Terrace and then done as a co-production between North Shore and Palo Alto mm. because of the response to the festival presentation. Uh, North Shore was committed to its dates, so we couldn't make the workshop at the Terrace Works, so they just did it cold, a co-production between North Shore and Palo Alto. And, um, it, you know, it was in its early stages. It hadn't necessarily gotten the development that it needed. After Palo Alto, the, it sort of stalled, and George was older and, and not well, uh, and he ultimately couldn't take it to the next level. So that when um, Randy and I started our company, Randy had been at Palo Alto. He, he knew the, the potential of the show. We then put it together and ultimately went to La Jolla and Seattle, and that was the commercially enhanced uh, right. co-production that eventually brought it into New York. But that's seven years wow. and four mm. regional theaters that if we hadn't been so stubborn, it never would have made it out of Palo Alto. That's know. a great story. Yeah. Is out of town always helpful? I think it's better if you can just keep it out of the limelight and just do the work because it is that kind of key 
opportunity to see in front of a real audience that's paying mm -hmm. paying for it. You know, if 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 you're there for the right reasons at the right time, does that make sense? I mean, no, it's no, unfortunate no. though, though, that with the internet now. If anything has any profile whatsoever, whether it's the title or whether it's the artist creative team attached, um, you know you don't have that uh, anonymity anymore. It just it just doesn't. And and now when gossip columnists are flying across the Atlantic to go see a show and write about it in a faux review form, it you know That's scary. All, all of a sudden it's it's no longer. Um, it was it was sort of interesting that. Um, um, the color purple was so dismissed largely from the beginning that nobody even paid any attention to it. It was Dis ha dismissed how? I think I think most people thought that the that the story didn't make sense as a musical, that a story with an all black cast and no stars made no sense as a musical, that nearly everybody that I put together as the creative team had not worked on Broadway made no sense and um, and I didn't have a track record. So I think it was largely Sort of Doomed. dismissed <laughs> and, and, and very difficult to put the money together. But <clears throat> to take an opposite point, did it allow you to come in a little more under the radar because the expectations oh, were completely. Totally. Completely. Yeah. Completely. And the only time it really mattered, um, uh, you know, because my ego had nothing to do with it, but the, from a business perspective, the only time it mattered was first and foremost was getting a theater. I will tell you that that uh, Mambo Kings was supposed to come into the Broadway theater, and Daryl Roth made a last-minute decision not to. Um, Jerry called me and said, "How fast can you get the show up?" We were in a workshop, Fourth uh, of July of 2005, and I said, "I can first preview November one." And he said, "Come over and sign the lease." <coughs> Excuse me. And we we had no. We had no group sales announcement. We didn't even have an ad ready. Um, I had a cast, thank God, and a creative team ready, and um, and about a third of the money, and um, and basically I just said, okay, we're coming, and we're and we're just doing it, and um, and it wasn't until we announced it and we put our marquee up that Oprah called me. So that was all a last, and, and she asked, she said, I'll only get involved if I can put money in. And at that point, we had raised the $11 million, and so I had to ask four investors to cut back their investment in order to make room for her. So often on these programs, we hear producers, writers, actors talk about what they learn from audiences. But in the case of developing a new musical, one of the things I want to ask is, very often, because audiences like musicals, and when you're out of town, unless they have major, major problems and the audience doesn't like it, sometimes they're embraced, whether it's in the barn at the O'Neill, whether it's in either of the theaters at Goodspeed. Um, can that inhibit the work that you need, believe needs to be done on the show if the audience is having a good time, absolutely, you have to you have to fight really hard to get the changes you know you need to. My get. staff always yeah. jokes because I have there's a quote over my desk that they put up there. I always say, "Oh, what do audiences know? They don't know anything." <laughs> you know, we watch these things with a really cold eye. We, we have to because yeah. we have to make them the best they can be. Yeah. We can't be swayed by getting a laugh someplace if we think that laugh is wrong. We yeah. just can't be. Yeah. And and authors are but but they loved it. My friends loved it. The audience loved it. Not yeah. good enough. It's no, a, it's it's a real skill yeah. that needs that has to be learned by creators. That they they have one ear on their work, but they have the other ear on what isn't landing. 
in the audience and really pay attention it's to that. It's so hard for them. We've had you know, a yeah. lot of emerging artists hard. at the O'Neill, but also veteran artists, and the veteran ones really know how to do that, uh, mm -hmm. regardless of the audience reaction. Yes. It, this reminds me, we had a, a little sleeper at the O'Neill in 1989, I think it was. It was a three-character musical called Gunmetal Blues. And they, it's, a, it's kind of a crime mystery noir um, piece by Scott Wentworth, Marion Adler, and Craig Baumler. Anyway, they came up to the O'Neill with a script about that big. And um, we went in front of the audience for the first time. And it was very long. Um, and audiences were leaving. I mean, over the course of the two and a half hours, three hours, a lot of audience left. Towards the end of the first reading, there were very few people left in the audience. One of them was Sheldon Harnick, mm. the most amazing person <laughs> in the world, who was with those guys, understood what they were going through. We sat down and talked afterward. Mm. And over the course of the two weeks, they pared it down and they kept listening to the audience. Where are we losing them? It ended up being a sweet little 90-minute piece, and it has had hundreds of productions around the country. That's great. That's great. And that was because they were able to, as your, your question about going out of town and then learning, but it is learning hard. to I mean, listen. We all know that in a, in a rehearsal room, everything's fabulous. I mean, mm -hmm. you're this close to every actor, and that's wonderful. And then you go in front of an audience. And again, I remember being in Atlanta with Color Purple and coming back and having a note session and saying, um, this song's not working. Lyrically, it's not furthering the plot the way that they want. And, and the composers would say, did you hear the applause yeah. when that song was over? Are you kidding that. me? You, you've lost your mind. And we rewrote <laughs> half the show after, after Atlanta. We had a notebook this thick of, sure. of notes. But it, I, th I think it's hard also choosing where you go, not only economically about you know, who wants the most enhancement money, but also who are those audiences? Who's got the smart audience for your particular mm -hmm. show? And mm -hmm. what kind of voices do you want to hear? Um, because I, I, think, I think you don't want the most obvious audience. Where can you go where you're going to actually have the harshest critics, where you're going to have people walking out? Because I think that's where you learn. Well, harshest critics in the house that aren't the actual critics. Too. No, I mean I, real I, I people. I think there are certain towns where uh, people are a little more cautious about they're going to go there because of the, the critical response that Correct. they have historically gotten. And, you know, you hear about back in the day, everybody wanted to go to Boston because Elliot uh -huh. Norton was such I was a just going to mention Boston. You know? um, and I think that that whole, mm -hmm. to go back to the whole idea of the Internet and people, people sort of coming in before they need to, I, I think it has to do with how you go out of town and how careful you are about protecting the work and protecting the writers and not not making so much noise and I think that if your trajectory is a little bit longer than um, a commercial engagement where you're going out of town you've got a commercial engagement then you're coming in you sort of have to make noise because you're using that to propel you oh, into town as opposed to I've, I've got a show that I know needs work we're not going to Broadway unless we get the work done. So let's go find a place where we can get this work done constructively. But we know you're that right, there's an audience that's going to respond. But we know the process, since it's multi-year, and, so, and there's such big gaps of time in between mm -hmm. each step of the way, mm -hmm. that whatever happened last sort of lives in the ether as that's, what, that's what's going on with the show. And it's, it's so unfair, but as a producer, we're not only 
trying to manage the creative process, but you're also having to think about the business side of, okay, a lot of people don't go sh see shows. Um, I'm bringing something in this fall that half the people that are investing in never saw it. They, they, read, they read the LA Times and they, and they saw the web stuff that we posted and they said, I like this show and I'm gonna put money into it. But had it been negative, it would have been a whole different story. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, it, just because it might have been negative six months ago when it was in one form of production or presentation, doesn't mean that tremendous amount of work <laughs> hasn't been done or wasn't planned to be done. It's true. And so you have to sort of climb up that public relations hill over, over and over and over, and over oh, I cannot tell you the number of people who said to me, Memphis, wasn't it the one that was up in Boston? It really didn't get good reviews. No, I said, it was five years ago. It's a different team. Exactly. We've been working. We're you in know? a world of sound and, and you have And you have to, you have to um, fight against that. But there's also the contrary situation, which you, and for a little time I had at Good Speed at Chester, was because the critics have agreed <laughs> that that those shows are protected and they're mm -hmm. not going to be reviewed if there are only three week runs and you wanted to get people like Scott Sanders and Robin Goodman to come and see them and I'm not saying that this was the case with either of you very often the response from the producers was well or the can we read the reviews yeah. and not having reviews you couldn't get anybody at the O'Neill in the early days when things started hitting certainly nine coming out of, out of your conference, um, and then the early August Wilson plays, there was a period in the life of the O'Neill where limos were coming up from New York right, right. To, to check out shows. With, and that's changed now. There's not as much travel without a review to, to look at something. So it is, it is a double-edged sword. And sometimes you should listen to your reviews and you don't. For instance... Correct. High Fidelity, which is a show I, I still have a soft spot for in my heart. It had the brilliant Tom Kidd, Amanda Green, David Lindsay Bear, three wonderful talents. Uh, they wrote a show that was loved by a certain population. I would say it was loved by men, mostly middle-aged men, who unfortunately don't buy tickets. But, uh, and, and there were a lot of wonderful things about it, but we went to Boston with it. And, uh, you know, uh, the Boston audience, I, I, I can't speak for them in general, but they were okay. They seemed to like it. They didn't seem to love it every <clears> night. <throat> uh, we were working on it constantly up there, and the critics didn't like it at all. In fact, the theater critic actually didn't review it, which was unfortunate. The music critic reviewed mm. it. I think we might have done a little better. Uh, but if we really, as producers, we talk about this ad nauseum, had been paying attention, uh, we would have seen there was an essential misunderstanding between the audience and the show, and we didn't want to hear it. A lot of producers maybe would have just not brought it into town. We, we loved it. We loved the, uh, the team who wrote it. And we said, we'll work on it, and then we'll open it in New York, and it'll be, it'll be a different experience. And it wasn't, of course. The, mm. the critics, it was not a critic's darling. And uh, uh, making a decision to close a show is the hardest decision you have to oh ever have to make. And uh, we did a lot of crying. And... Mm. Uh, Closed it in a week. It's like killing your child. It is. It's just. It was the most painful thing that ever happened to me, actually, in the theater. Well, let's take a step back from a from a show that ultimately came in and ran a short time to the decision. Have you ever been faced with making the decision and made the decision to stop a show 
that was in development or was done out of town or and and say you know what I don't believe this will improve I don't think this will make it past the critics I have to let it go I mean there were certainly it certainly shows that um we worked on up at the good speed that, uh, and it was always the ones I loved the most, <laughs> that for one reason or another, uh, it, it was, it, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't push them forward because uh, there was, and it was usually had to do with kind of a breakdown among the team that they couldn't all agree on what the show should vision. be. But it's hard to let that go, especially when mm. you put so much of your time in it. It's and really and you get these blinders on, like with anything, you get these blinders on and you don't have the, the sort of distance on it where, you know, six months later you look back and go, what was I thinking? Why did I work so hard on that? But it's because you're just in this place and everybody's passionate about it. And ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately it, that, that very difficult, decision to pull the plug is um, is hard. one that you you don't necessarily always have um, the courage to do you know I or think it's one of the most important things we do as producers though because I think that I think you're right the the decision to bring something in that's not ready um, doesn't serve anyone uh, and and first and foremost the, the, the creatives attached to it it um, People know when they're in a show that's not working, and you can meet with them for drinks after the show, and they, they just know. They, they'll, mm. they'll tell you they're, you know, they're auditioning the next day, and they're, you know, they know they're <laughs> yeah. in a show that's yeah. not working. Yeah. And, and yet, um, you know, so sometimes either saying, you're not ready, no, we're not coming in, either I'm ready to walk away because I don't think I can contribute any more to this process, or if you're bound and determined to come in next season, then you should probably do it with someone else because I think you're probably two more development steps before it's ready mm -hmm. to actually come in. And and doesn't mean that we're right. I mean, art is subjective and, and, yeah. and none of us have a crystal ball, but if we believe strongly that you know, it's not fully baked and it's not ready. It doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't serve anybody to pacify a director or pacify a composer or writer. Um, you might think that you're doing them a favor, but in the long run, you're actually doing everyone a disservice. Well, it's, and it's miserable, too. Yeah. I mean, it's miserable. Sure. I think, um, but to kind of skew this back, because I feel like we've become very Broadway-centric in this discussion and in terms of, of the target, Mm -hmm. You know, it may be with certain shows, and, and again, I don't want to name any, it may be that with some shows, the trajectory you're on is not the right trajectory, but it doesn't mean that there isn't another path for Correct. it, you know? And a show that really should not be put up in the harsh light of, of Broadway and expected to mm -hmm. succeed could have a wonderful life elsewhere Absolutely. if you could just figure out how to craft it. You know, I think there were a couple of those shows last year where the, Broadway's a really tough market. It's mm -hmm. a really tough market and you're, you're, you're under a very, very um, uh, 
bright glare, and some shows don't stand up to it. Doesn't mean they're not good shows, you know. So what what do you do? How do you? Well, Robin you, talked a minute, a, a few minutes ago, about about um, the road presenters, and mm. I, and it seems to me like that's the perfect opportunity for something that doesn't necessarily come to Broadway to live, and yet. If they buy it, that's and that's the that's the hook, obviously. Yeah. But you know, trying to find something that actually uh, has not established itself from a branding perspective on Broadway, and it's always been sort of remarkable to me that you could bring someone. Here's an idea. It's a really good idea. Listen to it. Read it. Don't you think that's great? Yeah, I love that. Boy, that's fantastic. Okay, so you'll buy something that opened and closed on Broadway in four months. <laughs> basically failed and lost all its money and now it's going to go out on tour and you're going to buy that across the country Absolutely. and yet we've got this little jewel here we could actually sell to you for like a third of what that one would cost which one do you want they'll pick that one yeah and you kind of go wait a minute so I you have to wonder whether or not the presenters um, with producers who can find something I mean should something just go from the fringe festival straight to the road and could it be something that they could afford to do split weeks with? Or is there some other way in order to not have to say, it's got to get all the way up to the top of, of, of Mount Everest to wave its flag and put on its neon sign, and then all of a sudden somebody else wants well, it? Well, you know, to, in, in, in their defense, you know, it, most of them are booking it as a Broadway series. So, right. so and this is what we've all mm. trained our audiences to expect. I, I think. There, there is some movement with that. I mean, certainly there's a, I think, successful tour of Little House of the Prairie that's out there now. Mm -hmm. uh, the producers made the decision after they opened it out at the Guthrie not to bring it in, but they had a title. The star attached. And a star attached. Right. And they had a brand. So that they did have something that they could sell that doesn't have the Broadway imprimatur. Um, so, so I think that it, it's really about the handle on, on how to sell it. You or if know? you can get a star to go on the road, you're you a lucky get, person. What's a star? I mean, who, yeah, what's who sells star? tickets? That's what I don't. I, I think it's as much Little House on the Prairie that sells tickets yes, as I think it is you're right. with, with the original. Because they had that TV but show. But that's one that plus one equals five books. in that yes. situation. Yeah, I think I think that's the that's the the tough part. You know, um, certainly there's a, a tour out there, or or there was a tour out there of 101 Dalmatians. Same thing. It's a title, so they can sell it. Dirty Dancing, right? Yep. But but it hasn't played Broadway, so it's you, it's about that that show that doesn't have the title, <laughs> that doesn't have any of the name right. recognition. Well, let's talk about one other level because it's funny, Sue. You said you wanted to take us away from Broadway, and you, you got right back there. It's, it's, it's <laughs> sort of the, the, next, the inexorable draw. But but let's talk about a show that you were involved in developing, which was Vanities, mm -hmm. which had aimed for Broadway, mm -hmm. ultimately ended up uh, off Broadway mm -hmm. at the second stage. Mm -hmm. um, that is a very small musical. Mm -hmm. Now, is it going to play 3,000 seat presenting houses across the country? I would think not. Mm -hmm. But is there a life for that musical? Are some of the small pieces that you might be developing, Paula, yeah. is, mm -hmm. is that a different market that's legitimate? <clears throat> that's actually something that uh, folks are working on. The smaller, um, you know, Orrin Wolf's uh, off-Broadway yeah. booking. Um, yeah. There smaller are a lot venues. of these performing arts centers have smaller venues that they don't book consistently. So there is this uh, attempt to get some of these smaller shows. Again, it's about you know some title recognition. Sometimes it's about price point. I mean, Vanities is going to get uh, a, 
a, a wonderful co-production between the, the Fifth Avenue and ACT in Seattle. And uh, we're talking about jump-starting a regional tour, not we, they are. I mean, it's something that the authors have licensed. Um, Seattle is talking about trying to put together a tour in the Northwest coming off of their engagement, you know. And I think that that's entirely possible. And I think there are other places that will do it. Could you mm -hmm. book a traditional tour with a limited run in an off-Broadway house with mixed reviews? No, you can't. It's too much work. We, believe me, we tried. Yeah. <laughs> we tried. But you mentioned Gunmetal Blues. I mean, how many shows have come out of the O'Neill and never touched New York but have had good lives? Oh, so many. So many. I mean, I, I can't bring to mind any particular one right now. I, I'm curious, I mean, we were, we were talking about, you know, sort of getting away from the, the Broadway, and, but also very early on, um, uh, Eisenberg's comment about you get a script and you love it and you do it. Um, I've embarked on something that came out of, uh, with premieres now, I'm talking about that hat that I wear. Um, I became really, um, entranced by Alan Bennett's Talking Heads. Uh, the monologues that mm -hmm. were first on PBS and mm -hmm. then they were off-Broadway. And so three or four years ago, I became very, very curious about that form of being sung. And um, commissioned from the ground up, uh, literally match-made teams that had never written together before. And it turned into Inner Voices solo musicals, which we did at the Zipper in 08 and is currently running at 59 East 59. Uh, with Witta Peru and Mosaic. But my question is, how much of that is going on these days in the current climate? Is there a lot of matchmaking going in your worlds or other worlds, you know, where your people are really putting together teams and starting from the ground up? A little bit. I mean, uh -huh. I, the one that was the several things I'm working on, we're trying to do that. But usually it's a, a team already established. Yeah. Like, you know, like uh, Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez are writing a musical for me in the roundabout. We're working on a new musical together. Uh, they came to me with this idea and they said, what do you think? And I said, let's go. Let's, let's do it. Um, and everything. Uh, sometimes I'm putting teams together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, it, but that's a very delicate operation. It, yeah, it it's very truly delicate. is. It well, truly is. And the flip side of that is, is, and it's been mentioned already, the, when you decide there's one piece of the team that maybe isn't working, whether they came in together or, or you put them together. You know, I, I'm, I'm uh, getting a reputation for firing book writers, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, and I'm the person who's always saying, it's not a booksicle, folks. It's the music that matters. But here I am with Alter Boys and with Avenue Q and other things, you know, replacing. Let's not call it firing. Replacing. Replacing. Uh, because... Uh, I, I, if they don't, if they don't have the vision that the composer has, or if they if they haven't got a structure, I mean, the structure of the musical book is essential. I mean, really, I think Jeff Whitty's book for Avenue Q is maybe the only perfect book I've ever worked on in my career, uh, for a musical. It's economical. It moves the story along brilliantly. It's hilarious, uh, and it works perfectly with the music of the show. But we put that we put that team together. And some of those songs were written long before long Jeff before. Witte ever and came. And they interviewed. To the, we gave the them show. two people to interview that we recommended for the job. Hmm. And they interviewed for. We were just talking. Jeffrey and I were just talking about this for like two months. They met with both of them. It was like driving us nuts. We were ready to tear our hair out. Mm -hmm. And ultimately chose Jeff. And you know I'm glad we let them go through that process because it was such the right person. 
and he 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 had their voice, he had their vision, and it was one of the. And his first time out too. First time out. Right. He was in a, a reading yeah. series that I did when I was at Manhattan Theater Club, and and I knew him back then. And then he wrote something called the Plank Project. I don't know if anybody saw that. It was a satire of the Laramie. Well, project. He's so talented. He's so talented. It's it's a very tricky thing. Very to bring tricky. Bring people very together. Very tricky. Um, I've I've so far with inner voices, I've been very fortunate. I mean, as I say, um, I introduced. Um, David Simpatico to Josh Schmidt. I had seen The Adding Machine and just thought his work was brilliant. Mm -hmm. David, and, and, and I give them a very specific, you're going to write a sung monologue. This is going to be one character mm -hmm. and a narrative. Did David write the lyrics? David wrote the lyrics in this case. And in uh, Sherry Steinkellner and Georgia Stead, who had never met before mm -hmm. either, uh, they co-wrote the lyrics. But we, <coughs> just, we just start with, these are your parameters. And I give them six months to make sure that they are a, a team that is correct to work with each other. And Great. Otherwise, we would, I, would, I would change um, you know, one of the authors. But it's, uh, it's, it's a real challenge. And it's exciting when it works, though, yeah. isn't it? It is it exciting really is. when the fairy dust, I mean, <laughs> the fairy dust, dust comes down. <laughs> Scott, Scott Davenport Richards and Michelle Lowe had never met, and they worked on the, one of the first inner voices, and now they're writing a large, larger work together. Michael John Lacusa and Ellen Fitzhugh were friends for years but had never worked together before. Now they're working together on something That's else. That's great. Um, and David and Josh did not meet because Josh is all over the country and David's primarily in New York until they'd already written half of their piece. Mm. So it sounds like sometimes you're matchmakers, sometimes you're marriage therapists, and sometimes mm. you're the person who mm -hmm. says, This isn't working, you mm -hmm. need to get out of this relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, you're talking about the writing team, and then when you start layering in right. all the other creatives, um, you know, it's 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 building it's building this. <laughs> sometimes it's a house of cards, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. the way folks communicate and and you know, it has to be a mutually respective, respectful relationship. But there also has to be enough uh, pull and and and. Uh, Yin and yang, I guess, so that they're comfortable arguing with each other. Do you like to bring That's directors in early? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Uh, we had a draft of Avenue Q before we brought Jason in, uh, but sometimes I like them just to write, mm. just let them be free. Uh, usually, a director is very good at helping them get away shape, shape mm. structural changes. Mm. You know. Um, it depends on who the director is. You know, not every musical director is a dramaturg. Well, and, you know, most, most not. Most, yeah, not. most and don't I, really and, develop. And yeah. I think that the people sitting here have skills at that. And so it's sometimes better to let the director come in at the end and say, oh, well, we don't need the scene because I'll do it in dance, you know, right. or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so I, I, each situation is different. Mm. Is there advice that you would <laughs> give to aspiring writers about what they would most benefit from in terms of, of their working? Or is everything so unique you just have to let it be its own thing? You know, it's it, it, write what you know, as they say. Uh, write what you're passionate about. Don't try to second guess what people want, because you'll always make a mistake that way. What, what are your concerns? They're going to be fresh and original and, and your own. And that's what I would say. 
it, they have to figure out what their voice is and they have to figure out what they want to say and, and what they're passionate about. I think that's absolutely true. You can't second guess. What, it was, uh, one of the questions was, how do we how do we get to here? And uh, the response was, well, start. Randy said he said start by making it good, make it good, <laughs> and then we'll figure out where it goes. You know, and and to not be sort of um, too dissuaded if somebody doesn't respond to your work, if you put it in front of somebody and a producer says it's not for me, it doesn't mean it's not for somebody else. You know, it's a very personal. Thing, Absolutely. producing and I, I say that to them I said don't make the mistake of thinking that producers just write checks because really good producers are there to be your collaborator and you want them to want the same things you want and it's not this sort of mm -hmm. business relationship where somebody says I'm gonna take you to here's, Broadway here's ten, million, here's $10 dollars. million dollars it's like producers <laughs> creative producers want to be part of the process so find the ones that want to do what you're doing yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you think about some of the great television shows and, and why some of the great ones are the way they are. If you look at Mad Men, for example, Matt Weiner, he's telling a story that reflects on his life and his personal experiences. And it's so authentic. It's, it's, it's just so authentic when you get that. So I think, again, like you've said, to let artists, writers um, express what it is that they want to talk about. They, you can always shape that. You can always say, you know, what about a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that? But if it comes organically from their soul and from, um, from what their interests are, I think it always starts best. And I, I also think, Sue, that your, your advice was also really great, which is that art is so subjective. And, and one producer may want to be developing work that appeals to 20 to 30-year-olds and and, and somebody else might really like, you know, what, what might be considered, you know, old-fashioned musicals. Well, if you've got, you know, don't go to the wrong person with your, <laughs> with your thing. If mm -hmm. you've got something tonally that's, um, that's working in one particular way, um, uh, I, I would say, you know, do your research. I think a, a lot of artists don't understand the business part, and you just get these mass emails every day with, here's my show, and yeah. you know, I go immediately to delete. You know, if you yeah. really yeah. want to know, if you want to <clears throat> tell me why you think what you've written is going to touch my soul and why we're going to be able to maybe connect on this, then create a unique presentation for me, whether it's a tape and a letter and a thing, and have it hand-delivered to my office, and, 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 and then we'll look at it. But, you know, the people that just send you things that says, you know, here's my new musical, please read and reply, you know. Kind of I, always, I always say, uh, well, to the composers in particular, surprise me. Yes. Don't tell me how much you love Sondheim. Don't. <laughs> Don't copy Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, yes, you're influenced by the people you admire, but then make your own choices and surprise me. Tell me something I haven't heard before. Exactly. <laughs> so let me ask that same question again about what you would say to young producers who say, I want to develop musicals. What do they need to know? Or what is the process they have to go through in order to be able to do that? They need to know that it's a lot of work, and you really have to love it in order to go into it. And be willing to, to stick with something for years mm -hmm. at, with no income, if, if, the, if not the opposite, spending money right. uh, along the way, and, and not having any idea what's going to come out at the end, perhaps zero, and be still so passionate 
and determine that they must do it. It's like they get up every day and there's a voice inside them that says, I must do this. I have no choice other than to do this, particularly in, in the beginning. I think that's absolutely true. I actually um, had a wonderful meeting with Robin, who was very generous with me when I had left the good speed and was trying to figure out what the heck I was going to do next. And she said, you know, there will be days when you just, you get up, you look out the window and you think, I, I, I can't, I got to go back to bed. I, can't, I, I pull the covers up over your head. And there have been days where I was like, Robin said it was okay to go back to bed and pull the covers up <laughs> over my head, and I'll just I'll just try this again tomorrow, you know. And it, and 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 it was really good advice, and I've actually given it to other people. I always credit you, by oh. the way. But I, you know, because it's really hard. It's really hard, and every day someone's going to tell you why you can't do it. Absolutely. Everybody is going to tell you why. Who are you? What is this show? Why should I give you money? Why should I give you a theater? And there are days when you can face it, and there are days you go, you know what, maybe I'll just go work in the garden today, and I'm going to start this again tomorrow, you know, and, and, and that's okay. Absolutely. I think I also said, remember, it's a man's world. Oh, yes. I did say that. <laughs> and as a woman, you have to be uh, smarter than everybody else. Do you else. still think that? I do, very much. Well, look oh. at the people who own the theaters. Well, there's some truth to that. Yes. Mm. Uh, um, anyway, I think there are a lot of women producers now, which is great. And I think it's changed theater in a certain way. That's excellent. The other thing I say to young uh, people who want to be producers is that your reputation happens very quickly. Always tell the truth. Mm -hmm. Always be honest. Absolutely. With your artists, here, with your business here. partners. And do the hard things. <clears throat> when someone has to be let go, show up. When a horrible phone call has to be made to an agent you hate, do it. Take responsibility. Take responsibility because that matters and that gets around. Mm -hmm. If you're a coward, people know it. So, I think that's very important. That's great. Well, on that note, I'm going to thank you all for your perseverance in developing musicals and those we've already seen and presumably many more to come. Thank you so thank much you. for thank being you. here. Thank you. And thank thank you. you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York in partnership with our friends at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, and thanks for joining us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. I'm Ted Chapin, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. The Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. Best known for creating the Tony Awards, we stand for excellence, but we also support education in the theatre, and our work reaches beyond Broadway in New York. The Working in the Theatre television programs which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are unequaled forums for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth radio interviews were created in conjunction with XM Satellite Radio and can be heard on our website. Our annual theater company grants support New York not-for-profits and since they began have distributed nearly $3 million. We are also pleased to be the home of the Jonathan Larson grants which support emerging composers and lyricists. For people who are starting their careers, we have a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country called Springboard NYC. And our theater intern group provides a forum for young people who are starting their careers to build a professional network. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free on demand from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Thanks for your interest in the wing, and thanks for watching.